Howdy, gang. Thanks for tuning to Backcountry and Barbells. Uh, real quick, gang, if you want to, if you appreciate the show, want to help us out, go on over to ellsworthsocks.com, uh, buy a pair of the most advanced socks in the game, and when you do, use discount code BNB20 and save 20%. Guys, can't say this enough. They are the best socks around. Um, Ash Jeremy, the other day we were out fishing. Uh, he was wet waiting in a pair of these socks and, uh, you know, six hours of waiting in the cold uh, streams, not easy, but made much easier by the Ellsworth socks. Wool is great. It When it gets cold, it stays warm, and Jeremy can attest to that. So check them out, guys. When you do um, discount code BNB20, lets them know we sent you, um, helps them out, helps us out, helps you out, helps everybody out. BNB20, save 20%. Today's show, guys features author phil white phil white's been on the show before we were supposed to talk about unplugged ended up talking about winston churchill today we spend the gist of the conversation on teddy roosevelt and living the strenuous life um quick note interesting times for teddy rooseveltville right now they're contemplating taking down his statue from the front of the new york uh, Natural History Museum. So what do you think of that? What do you think of the show? Let us know, guys. Um, hopefully we're doing something in this episode to help you train, hunt, and live your best life possible. Um, and if you're interested in a reading list um, that Phil recommends, if you want to learn a little bit more about Teddy Roosevelt, check out the show notes. And also check out Phil's website, uh, philwhitebooks.com, for any books that he's written. Uh, books on history, books on um, strength and conditioning, um, anything. Anybody wanting to train, hunt, and live the best life possible would thoroughly enjoy. Thanks a bunch, guys. And for your listening pleasure, episode 78 of Backcountry and Barbells featuring Phil White and The Strenuous Life. Howdy, gang. Backcountry and Barbells. Joe Shamanic here joined again um, with uh, Phil White. Phil, what's going on, man? Hello, sir. How <laughs> yeah, are you? I'm, I'm hanging in there uh, just like all of us are right now. And, um, you know, interesting times continue in this country, um, which, which is to probably say the least. But um, it's really cool to have you back on, folks. We, we had a past chat with Phil um, not too long ago, and, and we got on the topic of uh, Winston Churchill. And uh, despite all our pre-chat to not get into just mental resiliency, we stuck on there. Um, and, and we were kind of overwhelmed, I think, at least me personally, by just... Um, how how great a figure he was and, and and got into maybe how we could um work out our own maybe um mental deficiencies by by looking in the past and today we'll we'll take a different take on on a, on that idea and looking at a different figure but uh Phil before we get into that I, there there's a big issue happening right now um in uh in politics in this country and I think it I think it I want to bring it up for a couple of reasons one in a moment where we're divisive as ever with, um, you know, uh, race conflicts and rioting happening. And I mean, even just up the road here in, in Seattle, um, you know, people are taking over city hall and doing some strange things. And then, you know, also at a moment where a virus makes, makes it okay almost for people to confront folks on the streets for wearing a mask, um, or not wearing a mask, right? It's just a really interesting time. But what's really cool, there is hope. And I think the hope in that is there's really giant bipartisan legis- legislation. Actually, it's crossed its first, had- uh, first hurdle in the Senate. And um, it's it's work that backcountry and barbells, or excuse me, um, backcountry hunters and anglers um, highlights quite a bit. But, you know, the Senate passes this Great American Outdoors Act by a vote of, you know, 73 to 20 
whatever the math is, 27-ish, um, depending on how many senators are in there. But um, it's great bipartisan legislation. And, and to me, it's like, you know, the great outdoors, um, public lands, it seems to be that is as unifying an issue as ever. And it's like it, at the midst of where we're super divisive, to me, it's just great that something like that is moving forward. I mean, you're in Colorado. Um, is 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 this is this being followed at all? I mean, I don't hear this yeah, in the news. Definitely. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it depends on where you get your news and yeah. if you get your news. So my wife and I are both on kind of a low information diet. You know, she came out of having COVID and being being laid up and moving house and everything. And even just recently, just the poisonous negativity um you know wherever you happen to get your news sure. like um very few outlets are in quotes fair and balanced and it doesn't matter which outlet it is they all have bias and they all have agendas and they all have advertisers whose agendas want to be satisfied and so we're just trying to not whether it's um in the uk i'll occasionally look at the telegraph's website um, but mainly just to see if old Boris has lifted the quarantine to see mm. if I might be able to fly back and see, see my folks at some point this year, which I, I don't know if that will happen or not. But yeah, really just not looking at domestic news. But what I do look at every day is Adventure Journal, which to me is about the best magazine out there. So Steve Casimiro oh, and his cool. team. So yeah, not everyone can necessarily afford, you know, $15, $16 an issue for this quarterly but um, when somebody the likes of Chris Burkard, the adventure photographer, is, um, you know, a contributing photo editor to that and, and anyone who's been around outdoor publications for a long time will know Steve Casimiro's name and reputation. And so, yeah, they just put together this beautiful print publication. And then Steve and a couple of virtually volunteers try to do some daily web news. And um, so, yeah, saw it on there, saw it on Outside Magazine. And Steve kind of gives a good rundown of kind of the history of this thing and some of the figures both on the, both sides of the aisle that were working really hard on it. And then, as you mentioned, some of the outdoor um, organizations who have really banded together and even some of the companies like Patagonia who've really got behind this. And so, um, yeah, it, it really has been a combination of companies that, that truly put their money where their mouth is in terms of lobbying. It's been Democrats, Republicans, independents in Washington, and it's been you know, people like us that like to, you know, in my case, hike and paddleboard and such, in mm. your case, hunt and fish and do other outdoorsy things that really have, over the years just, just been like, hey, we, we need to do better here. And I even saw a thing on Outside Magazine about from a fiscal standpoint, how investing in the outdoors is the way to get our economy out of this po post-COVID slump. So that might be a good, uh, it's a good article to read just to, in terms of, again, just a positive uplift and showing that when push comes to shove, we are capable of um, sitting across a table from people who we may not vote the same on, on whatever hot button issue it is. We may, you know, be pulled apart on a lot of things, but we can all agree that, um, you know, getting outdoors isn't just for us. We've got to preserve um, the great American wilderness for our kids and their kids and their kids beyond. So this is, you know, when it, when something's this important, we, we need to pay attention. Lateralize, yeah, we can hopefully, hopefully lateralize this into some of the other um, wrangling that's going on right now and not just try to reduce people into, oh, well, you're a Republican, so you must be a, oh, well, you're a Democrat, so you must be a, oh, you're an independent. So you, you know, it's just reductionism and the brain's always trying to save energy, which is why st stereotyping and 
reductionist thought process start to creep in because the brain doesn't want to have to sit down and think through the issues in shades of gray. But ultimately, you and I both know that it's um, most issues are that subtle and that nuanced and that complex. But if we really just come together for the common good, it's not some Pollyanna thing. But this, as you say, is living proof that we can do better as a country. Yeah, I think it's great. And, and, and to, to just continue with it, I mean, folks, continue to pay attention. You know, going through the Senate's one thing, but uh, we have to get this thing also through the House now. And, um, you know, and, and there's things you can do. And I also think the hope in this, too, with me, at least with, you know, um, the, the group that I pay attention to on these topics is um, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. It's a, it's a, it's a great uh, nonprofit based out of Missoula, Montana. But, you know, they... You know, I have I've had history teachers, I've had parents, I've had great mentors. You know, you gotta you gotta know where you stand on some of these issues. And I've never really gotten into it, but because of backcountry hunters and anglers, it's gotten me at least politically active by giving you a few simple things, whether it's form letters you can send or just letting you know that you know you can make a phone call and can feel good about it. I know I and it's complicated when I say this, but I called all four of my senators. You know, um, I live here in Washington, but, uh, you know, I have res- I hold residency in South Carolina. So that what's the hurt? You know, so I picked up the phone dial 202-224-3121. Um, uh, and you guys should, too. And just look up your congressperson's name. You know, call that number. Try to get on their switchboard and leave a message. And I'll tell you, from my personal standpoint, having done that and then gotten the news that that bill came through, like, I felt good. I felt like I was involved. So, you know, it's also a chance, I think, too— you know, get involved, make the phone call, and um, just pay attention a little bit. And, and personally, it just felt really good to do that. So um, um, I, I urge you guys, uh, follow through with it. Let's get it through the House. So, um, and then to go back, it's serious legislation. We're talking about an earmarked $9.5 billion for um, backlog uh, renovations and then $900 million a year um, that we're looking to support these public lands. And I know you mentioned it. Um, I like to hike a lot for father's day, which we just got over, uh, that weekend. Um, I climbed, uh, we climbed to Lake 22 and in June we got to experience snowfall, you know, at the top of a mountain, which was pretty rad. And then, uh, you know, the day before that I was on state land while my kids were stacking rocks and I was out trying to catch sea run cutthroat trout. So, um, these lands are unbelievable. So, um, let's support them. Let's get on it. And, um, I think what's interesting is, as we talk about public lands, probably the reason this bill's going through or the reason we have these great public lands out west is because of the gentleman we're going to talk about today. Um, we're going to talk about the uh, the young life of, uh, or excuse me, the uh, early life of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who um, I didn't realize this. He didn't like to be called Teddy by folks. He wanted to be called Theodore. He's a pretty proper fella, Phil. Mm, quite, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll start, let me start the conversation just with there's a cool quote in the early book so the book that i'm going to reference is uh the rise of theodore roosevelt and uh talking to from one englishman to another phil yep you got it too we got it out so uh, it's not mine though i will note that like if anyone's like oh yeah you just bought this guy on the plug his book no it's yeah, yeah. edmund morris and if you yeah. want further reading read his uh new, newer book on edison which is also quite good yeah and it's funny you're on i'm on a borrowed copy and uh yours is your copy or, or are you born a borrowed? yeah it is yeah it's from um half price <laughs> books which uh we don't have any half price bookstores um that chain anyway out in here in colorado but yeah anytime we go to kansas city there's like four different ones so i'll the kids love to go we we hit them all 
end up but and then you know when we wanted to set this chat up i went and i have a buddy who's like a budding historian so i went and grabbed this book to read the old-fashioned way but i love this this quote in the very start of the book by uh john morley it goes uh uh do you know the two most wonderful things i've seen in your country and he goes uh niagara falls and the president of the united states um, both wonders of nature and they go on to just talk about how in both instances whether it's niagara falls or theater or you know teddy roosevelt he just was like perpetual energy and to me it's like i haven't heard any modern day politician uh described in in i guess you could say trump is super active right whether he's you know um yeah, with his mouth or whatnot, but in glowing terms, like Theodore Roosevelt was just this ball of energy. And um, it's a statement from across the way saying that, I mean, um, the glowing image of him just not stopping and shaking thousands of hands on a particular day. I mean, um, any more accounts of that that, that, that resonate yeah, in your mind? Um, the, it may have been the journalist Lincoln Stephan. So there's... Um... Let's see if I can find this bloody book. It, <laughs> where is it? Give me two seconds and I'll be right back. Oh, go for it. it. Literally grab it off the shelf. All right, that was bad prep on my part. Yeah, so <laughs> no, you're okay. The amazing um, Pulitzer Prize winning... Well, actually, this, this book won of the Pulitzer Prize. I think Doris Kearns Goodwin, The Bully Pulpit. Very cool. And so, yeah, there's old Teddy. So <laughs> on the back is um, these four journalists, right, who, who worked for S.S. McClure at McClure's Magazine. And this is just, yeah, The Bully Pulpit. So, again, I didn't write it. I wish I had. It's amazing. But one of those journalists talked about witnessing Teddy, and I think this was back when he was in the New York Senate. And talking about how it was like witnessing a frightful machine getting up to speed, like to shadow him for a day. And the further he went, he just got, went harder and faster. And he was, you know, reviewing legislation, like you said, meeting the public. He was going into session. And the session was so unruly in the New York Senate when he was in there. That, and we're talking about like the, the state legislature here, not the Senate Senate in, in D.C., that he... I think either his first or second day, realizing that it might really get out of hand, he, while someone else was speaking, he was unscrewing a table leg to you, put beside him and use as a cudgel if he needed to, to batter someone if they came at him. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, um, yeah, a lot of these feisty, Amer you know, Irish-American politicians and Italian-Americans, and it was a real melting pot. It was really cool kind of to see how it was really representative of all the... Um, different ethnic minorities in in new york state but teddy was not messing around if someone had come at him he would have literally battered them with a table leg that he had taken off one of the tables so um yeah these journalists that observed him um wrote about him in mcclure's magazine particularly followed him over most of his political career just saw that he became almost like what they call like his and i'm going to butcher it like this frightful machine that hmm. once it gets up to full speed it just devours everything in its path and he was just irrepressible. Well, and two, and then two, I mean, we revere him in many ways, especially in this space, because he's, you know, this father of these public lands and, you know, this this figure that can almost do no wrong. But he 
he he was pretty impulsive and, and to to go into one of these um these moments in this in in his time as an early politician in new york um i guess the one fella who was ahead he was an ex-boxer you know some of these politicians back then they were they were surly fellows and i guess a rumor had gotten to teddy that uh this gentleman uh was gonna impose some physical will on him or uh, confront him, knock him down. And, and I guess at that moment, his uh, his boxing background from Harvard kind of spiked up and uh, walks across the Senate floor and says, if you're going to do that, um, I'm going to bite you, spit on you, and I'm going to throw you down. And if you get up, I'm going to do it again. So, um, you know, politics back, I could, I could see politics being fun back then. You know, it, it was a different oh, space yeah. and, and you had to not only know your chops, but you had to you had to be able to distribute some punishment or take it or, or have fun or and stand up for yourself. Yeah. He, um, he invited, I think it was when he was governor of New York, he invited the guy that would become the head of the, the first head of the U S forestry service in. And he said, we're going to, we're going to box this afternoon in the governor's mansion, by the way. Um, and the guy was more of a wrestler. He was like a wrestler in high school and maybe in college. And he was like, well, no, why don't we wrestle? And then they settled on, okay, we're going to do one round of each. And they ended up splitting the tie. So Teddy beat him in the box. And this was in Teddy's office in the governor's mansion. Awesome. They boxed <laughs> for points. And then they, I think, wrestled to submission and uh, split it. But yeah, there's a story. It may have been the same guy that later wrote that they, um, anytime, even with president, like when you went out for a walk with him, if you encountered an obstacle, you weren't allowed to just say, let's just forget it you would have to go like over it around it or through it like that was his policy so if it was a bridge (laughs) you you would have to be like under the bloody thing if you couldn't get over it you know like hanging onto a pipe or something there was one story about that and so yeah he his idea of a good you know like we talk about like steve jobs how he would do his walking meetings well teddy's walking meetings were a bit different because you would he would take you up a mountain or through a forest or whatever but um that it was you know from both sides of the aisle that's how he got to know people better and ideas flowed back and forth and that was kind of his his deal if you wanted to get out and didn't matter if it was a family member in town or or a fellow politician you'd be going on a pretty rough and ramble walk with him and who knows what you might encounter yeah and he did it at all it didn't matter it would seem and, and we're going off on the hiking and we'll, and we'll bring it back in a moment but it didn't it didn't seem to matter the conditions either i mean he was gonna even at his busiest time it would seem and when he's trying to go through exams and he's chasing his his first wife down it would seem like when he was at low levels of activity there's one account that says he was still getting his six mile walk in every day you know what I mean? And, and yeah, no matter what, like the, it's kind of like the routine thing of how, you know, Ch- Churchill would always take his bath. Like we talked about last time, you know, like in, he was over trying to get the French to fight on. And obviously they ended up not, but, um, they couldn't figure out why, why Winston was so late. And it was because his, uh, his valet, his servant had, um, woken him up <laughs> too late but he insisted on at least taking like a 30 40 minute bath before the proceedings for the day so set his mind right <laughs> yeah get his mind right and it was just yeah just that routine and that force of habit so um yeah teddy but but in some ways you know to begin with he was like the, the typical like 90 pound weakling you know that may have got sand kicked in his face and people also may have thought he was soft because he came from a life privilege you know he came from an aristocratic background and so the name was known where he was from. Um, but yeah, he was, you know, as you know, now he's an asthmatic child. He was sickly all the time. And 
really it was partly his father's influence that was like, all right, we're going to get this kid outdoors. I'm going to send him down to the southwest to get some good clean air. He's going to be, you know, walking 10 miles a day or whatever it was. And Teddy even wrote to a family member, like, I am resolved to build build my body. Yes. It was like, wow, well, that's... And so build it, he did. Well, you, you, you bring it right up to where I wanted to start the chat, and it's just that you know we we have this imposing figure, we have this this guy who accomplished so much, you know, and for many accounts it was like he accomplished so much, not you know to to live up to his own father's name, who was a great man in his own right, but it didn't start out so great for him, right? I mean, young young T D Roosevelt was this asthmatic, frail kid, and going to what you said, like. There's a moment in the book that, and I highlighted it, and his his father says, hey, man, you've got the mind, but you've got to make your body. And that switch yeah. turned on for him. And, and exactly like you just said, he resolved to build his own body. And um, yeah. I thought it was, and, and where I want to actually start that is just even the early recommendations of the, the, the doctors at the time, which I thought was pretty neat. You know, they, they have this sickly little fella who's pretty smart, and the doctor says, uh... He doesn't prescribe all kinds of snake oil, right? Maybe snake oil is what's going around at the time. The doctor says, "It was exercise and French air. Get it. He needs lots mm-hmm. of it. And he mm-hmm. he seemed to take the advice and, and run with it. And the family did as well. He did. But then there was another doctor that said, you know, I'm, I, basically your cardiovascular system, although you wouldn't have used that term, is so weak. Like, you've got to stop all this. I think that one was in college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it yeah. might kill you. That's right. So we get these two <laughs> sides, right? We get yeah. this one old school, like the kind of family doctor today, like my wife's um, Uncle Bill and down there in, in Missouri, just, just retired from medical practice and now is... is um, well, he's always had a farm, but is, you know, raising grass fed cattle and that kind of thing and is in his woodshop. Just a real great Renaissance man, really. But uh, yeah, he would say, well, you, you just need to, you know, he, his thing is like, you need just need a tincture of time. Like, he's not one to prescribe <laughs> antibiotics or whatever, unless he has it. You just need a tincture of time. And he'd probably add to that, well, he's outdoor with his cows every day. So get outside but then you have this other doctor when teddy as you say is in like his late teenage years early 20s saying you're going to kill yourself if you keep going with this that's right exertion stuff son and he walks out of the office angry and wrote off some angry letter to it to his um cousin or something like that and yeah he, like, sa- you know, he, he said um idiot. <laughs> I'm, he, he said in that letter i'm going to do all the things you said i'm not to do <laughs> and then he proceeded to do it yeah exactly exactly but it's interesting that the influence of the father because it's like we can't as dads you know we're just coming out of father's day like we cannot make the decision to abdicate right so his dad obviously had some means which some of us don't but he turned there i think it was in new york the the second floor of their penthouse into a, basically a, a real fancy home gym, gym that's right like, get in there and figure it out son <laughs> um and so, you know, the influence of the father, while this guy, you know, again, some may look at him with his fancy suits and all his different houses and property and all this is like some spoiled toff, right, as we would say back home. But at the same time, he was an amazing philanthropist, which set an example for Teddy uh, as how to be when you're being in a position of power to help others. And that's the reason for it. Um, but then also from a physical standpoint, his dad, to me, seemed like the driving force. It was like, you're going to get out and you're going to be active and we're going to overcome this asthma and these ailments through strength, basically, and sheer bloody mindedness. 
Yeah, and, 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 you know, and they were doing some interesting stuff. I mean, they're talking about his chest press exercises, his gymnastics, and getting on parallel. Yeah, balls. Yeah, yeah, getting on parallel balls and, and some things like that. To, yeah, to, like Indian club action, I think, was in the mix there. We, yeah, which, which is great. Ray Cook and some others now would probably, or the strong first guys would certainly be down with that. So, Well, and, and to, to go with it, and maybe we can get right on that, where there's another account as he's, toying with these things and you know at the same time that he's getting this um note from the um physician later in life where you know while he's back in harvard you know interestingly enough you know his chest his chest press exercises are going up and some things like that but he's also reveling in like how important violent exercise was to him like Mm -hmm. just getting out there and, and also yeah you take the long walks and you're getting outside and enjoying nature but there was also a place for him where you had to do things hard, fast, and, and aggressively too. And and I think be, whether it's him noticing that as an adolescent and his dad letting him get outside with with you know different guns and chasing critters, and then him obviously falling into in love with um you know because he he loved being outdoors, but he had the freedom to experience some of this stuff and figure it out for himself on his own. So he he was he was it seemed to me like as a youth he was highly encouraged. Um, but he wasn't overcoached, which I think is also mm-hmm. super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Because we're, you know, we're all guilty of like, well, if I let my kids roam too far, will I ever see him again? You know, and that's yeah. a real thing. You know, it's a real thing. Um, but back in those days, there was no interstate system where, you know, it was quite a few years before old Dwight Eisenhower was uh, really pushing highways and freeways in the 50s sure. and that whole system which obviously changed the dynamics of parenting in a lot of ways from a safety standpoint but yeah i mean he was out roaming in the woods and collecting bugs and and even the menagerie that he would have in in the white house going forward like he would put like a horse in the ele- it was like a mini horse in the elevator someone observed and you know the all manner of birds and this this kind of thing and um yeah he was just really interested in in all of that and so uh, and then obviously mornings on horseback david mccullough's book recounts um what happened after his wife and, and his mother died on the same day in mm. 1884 and how he went out to the badlands and and that's even tied to you know his, his days as a rough rider like he was a skilled horseman that was his kind of therapy he was to ride hard all day and just wear himself out and um you know people noted that after he came back east after that trip he, he was kind of the the full barrel chest, you know, he filled out even more. And it wasn't because he was in the weight room or because he was, you know, at some fancy athletic club in New York. It was because he was out basically working as a ranch hand in, sure. in the Dakotas. And so um, there's something to be said for that too, you know, that kind of farm strength or dad strength, I guess we would say. Yeah. So we're, we're building like the, the Teddy Roosevelt, you know, conditioning plan. Right. And uh, you know, it's, it's so cool that, you know, of all the things that you can think about this guy that, you know, maybe he was the original home gym trainer, right? I mean, he was, he was getting after it, you know, working out at home and, and, and really, really pushing things. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's some great things to take away from that. Um, do you notice between, you know, what Teddy was doing between long walks, short bouts of intense exercise and getting outside, right? I mean, you could maybe sum up his physical conditioning plan in that, you know, it sounds to me like that's pretty consistent with what folks even now could probably take away from some of the stuff Teddy was doing to maybe fix whatever they're getting over through 
COVID quarantines or, or big stress. I mean, there's, there's a lot of takeaways there for just the, the modern human. Yeah. Cause I think that, you know, like my coworker, Kelly started would say, well, you know, do something active every yeah. day. Well, that's like part one, but then beyond that, what to do. And so I think, um, I worked on a piece when I was still writing for XBT with Andy Galpin, my co-author I'm unplugged. And he said, you know, you got to have like your two days of strength training, um, couple of days of power slash speed and then a couple of days of long you know kind of the more traditional long slow distance which could be just you know going for a walk your wife and kids hiking paddle boarding you know surfing whatever you're into just find something outdoors that's fun to do and do it and and um and then we know as we age that you know you've probably had guests on talking about like the decline in in muscle fiber over time but it's really andy says that fast twitch muscle fiber so Mm. a couple of days a week add in you know five minutes of jumping rope or box jumps or sprinting or something that's um not just you know what we would call power training like kettlebell swings or cleaning jerks and snatches but real fast twitch you know involving the power coming from the legs because over over time, none of us are getting any younger. And I know I don't That's have right. the endurance at 39 that I had at 29 or 19. So just reckoning with that. But yeah, that's kind of a good, um, and I also can send you a link to that as a resource, but just Andy's kind of, as a muscle physiologist, it cuts up muscles every, you know, doing muscle biopsies in the lab and kind of sees how bodies, athletic bodies progress as they age um, and or decline. That's, I think that was a pretty good um good baseline and really as you say what teddy was doing kind of really models that yeah although he may have done all of it every day <laughs> he might have well and you, well, you say that in a weird way like you know there's there's this concept now with you know everyone wants to it's almost like in against you know you have crossfit thoughts right be it the generalist right but then the other side of that is um you know you need to niche down and specialize it, it, but it seemed like Teddy Roosevelt at that time was a true Renaissance person in the sense that he was great at everything he tried to do. I mean, by when was his first? He wrote a book on naval warfare uh, uh, that he did that while he was in college. And when he was a kiddo, he was trying to start his own museum. And it seemed like even before he entered college, he was already had achieved lots of stuff that folks might consider lifetime achievements. And so I guess. How is it, is it, is it a, is it a, in your opinion, is this a matter of the times he was in? Is this a matter of, uh, the person he was, uh, the means he had, or, um, like many things, is it more than any one of them combined that made, enabled him to just accomplish so much? I mean, it's almost daunting when you start to dive into it. Like, how could he do it? Yeah, I mean, my buddy Dave Epstein explores this in his book Range, where, you know, it's kind of the Federer model where Roger Federer has exposed all these different sports and different activities and only started specializing in tennis really late. You know, and there are others, you know, the Manning brothers, others that we know in sports that that kind of did this, or I guess someone like Bo Jackson would be a more modern example. Mm. But um, we, I, I think what, Epstein talks about is like the network effect where it um there is something to be said for diving deep like the Tiger Woods is at the opposite end right which is how Epstein and Gladwell first debated it like Gladwell had the 10,000 hours thing which he got from Ericsson right okay and so he was asked to take one side of a debate and then he called Epstein and was like would you take the other position 
And it was only in kind of researching that position that Epstein, you know, six years later publishes the excellent book Range. But um, the point being that everything feeds back into everything else. And so it was partly, I think with, with anyone, it's like a personality thing because maybe Tiger's personality, you know, his dad obviously pushed him in golf and golf alone, but it was partly, you know, that kind of monomaical personality where he's like, okay, this is my thing. This is what I'm going to do and I'm going to be great at it. And that can work. Um, but yet all, all roads lead to Rome. And so the other side can, can work too, where you just go where your curiosity leads you which i think it was in teddy's case um and we're all kind of a product of nature and nurture right so it's partly sure. probably some things his dad was interested in and his mom and different cousins it sounds like he had you know a pretty big family around and you know just boys messing around in the woods and that kind of thing which is great so and it was partly that but um you, you know i don't think it was just oh this rich kid was given lessons in whatever he want because as you said it was um a lot of just messing around and following where his curiosity led. And I think sometimes that like the, the task switching, while it can be distracting, it almost gives you some time off. So even like right now, you know, I write for the champion's mind, I write for Momentus, I write for Hana and some of these other companies, but yet I'm also, you know, Jim Aframo and I are working on a book, working on the next one with Kelly Starrett. And so sometimes the transitions can be exhausting if there are a lot of them in a day, but it almost gives you a break from one to be able to go to the other sure. and then the other and then the other. And so, yeah, I think with him, he, like you said, he was kind of the ultimate Renaissance man, but an interesting parallel with Churchill is Churchill um, became a chartered um, bricklayer and learned from a guy who had, who had laid brick on his Chartwell estate, you know, how to do that almost apprenticed under him. Mm. Um, and, and for a while he was, he said something like, 200 bricks and 2000 words a day was his thing. Okay. He published hundreds of articles. He was a Nobel prize winning author, you know, his war memoirs, but there were many, many books before that. Um, there were all these different things. He, he was a painter and actually Teddy hated him. Like they only met once and they couldn't stand each other, I suppose. But, um, which was weird because maybe it's one of those where you see too much of yourself in someone else. It could have been that, like looking in the mirror, it kind of freaked him out. But they should have been great friends because they were both Renaissance men who were great leaders in their time. And uh, yeah, kind of an interesting kind of parallel course that you see in, in some great people. But, but yet again, there are those that specialize and are the absolute best in the world at that one thing. And that's fine for them too. So I guess it takes all sorts, really. Sure. And I, I, bringing up, you brought his father up in the middle of that, and it, it makes me wonder if you know you can dip in and out of different things, and in, in, in um, the network, the net, the the net of everything leads to greatness in something, right? If you, if you piece it all together at a certain time when you do decide to specialize, but I just wonder if if the background of that goes back to his father quite a bit, and we we talked about this a little bit with Churchill, like you know. Churchill might have been living up to his father's reputation. Well, it seems certainly that, you know, I, uh, Teddy. I think he quoted his father. He, he ta in in talking to his in talking about his father. It was very obvious that his father was the greatest man he was ever going to meet or live up to. So I, I just wonder if, in the background of dipping in and out of all these different things, you still just need that. You still need that one thing uh, to to just guide you, you know, principally towards at least one direction, so you can pull a negative or positive lesson from any experience, but then just drive it into to that one thing that you certainly want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it could well be. 
Yeah, and 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 for me, just reading the book about just reading through his um, thoughts about his father and his young life, despite everything, it just seemed to he he wanted to take on the challenge of living up to who his father wanted him to be, or at least live up to who his father was, and um, mm-hmm. that's also highlighted when. When his father did pass early, you know, he was in college and he had to deal with the grief of of his father, um, you know, parting ways early. Um, But he didn't take it lying down. You know, he decided that was going to be a moment where um, he was going to, you know, live up to those memories and and live up to the challenge of of losing his father and kind of take on the family responsibility. Because then all of a sudden, not only is he trying to get through school, but, you know, he's he's head of the household now. Mm-hmm. And then within a couple of years, his his mother had passed and his wife on the same day, which again was what led him to to go and basically be a ranch hand for a few months and leave his his child, you know, in the care of the family back east. And he just knew that he, at a soul level, needed some wide open spaces to to heal up and, and toughen up even more. And then obviously came back full force and kind of launched into politics from there. Well, and, and it's interesting, too, because we can get into a little bit about even how the, the loss of his wife in particular was is super interesting to me because the way he dealt with grief in that regard, you know, I, I couldn't imagine. Um, I've been pretty fortunate as an adult. You know, it's been since um, I can remember my grandmother passing um, when I was in, goodness, I was in eighth grade. And, and interestingly enough, she was pretty much, you know, she raised me. You know, she's the reason... Um, you know, she's the reason that uh, I overcame pretty much poor parenting and, and pretty rough, rough circumstances, right? So I can be grief stricken on that. But um, when when he dealt with that grief, um, it was no reason not to go back to work for him, right? I mean, he he dealt with it in two ways. I thought one, he went right back to the legislator in New York and handled bills and got it done. He promptly retired after that and did go out west. But but then he also decided that. I'm not going to talk about my wife ever again and almost taking pictures off the wall, you know, uh, taking her name out of diaries and some things like that. So, I mean, in, in that regard, um, just, just his handling of grief and, um, uh, how do how does history look at, look at that decision? Cause he didn't even mention Alice to he, her, her daughter in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't speak of her. Yeah. I don't really know. I, I know more about just, how he channeled it into okay what now like you said it it was almost a pragmatic thing because maybe he recognized he didn't have the capacity to deal with it if he reckoned with the emotionality of it full force so he was like all right well this you know i'm not comfortable with what i feel or what i think i'm going to feel so it's more a question of what i'm going to do yeah and so as you said he went and finished up his business um in new york and then just went out west and then that was kind of just a step in his development as a as a man and then came back yeah because i mean on one end you could be like well, what so you're just going to abandon your your kid sure. for a few months while you go do this this kind of guy trip out west but um again that was more of a solid it wasn't like he called his 10 closest buddies and was like all right boys we're going out west but it just went out by himself and sure he had those relationships you know on the ranch that he went to to kind of jump back on the horse literally but it was yeah it was almost like the metaphor is well let's he fell off so let's get back on the horse literally and yeah metaphorically well and, and even the first trip he went out there um i guess uh his first trip out west um i guess was by a chance encounter with a, a gentleman he met um 
in in New York, and he goes out west to to think. And this is before his wife had passed. Uh, it's slightly before then, but that first trip out west to kill a buffalo. And this is a trip that many guys, even now, I mean, is you, you want to talk about a conservation story that can kind of link again going back to Teddy Roosevelt this time. Uh, if this is what 1884 he's trying to kill one of the last few buffaloes out there and now some of these hunts are becoming more regular right so in that regard I think that's it to him but that first hunt it, it, it's really interesting there's there's a thing in hunting that at least in, in my regard there there should be a little bit of misery in the hunt to really enjoy it and that first hunt of his really highlights some of that where um, and all these experiences, he really liked the hard work. I mean, he liked mm-hmm. the misery of the outdoors as much as um, the the trophy at the end of a hunt. Yeah, and it was like a bit where they you know get caught in a rainstorm, I think, and didn't have the right provisions and just dripping wet for hours and it's cold and yeah. But it, it's um, it, there's a great quote that I printed out in my notes for today's conversation where he it kind of speaks to that where he says, uh, "And what we were talking about up till now," where he says. Um, a soft, easy life is not worth living. It impairs the fiber of the brain and the heart and the muscle. We must dare to be great, and we must realize that greatness is the fruit of toil and sacrifice and high courage. For us is the life of action, of strenuous performance of duty. Let us live in the harness, striving mightily. Let us rather run the risk of wearing out than of rusting out. Yeah. He couldn't stand the idea of inactivity or, or inertia. He had to be moving always, and it had to be striving and suffering and yeah. standing and falling and getting knocked down and getting back up. Well, and, and within that suffering is like the real, the fun, right? I mean, it's not fun while you're in it, but it's fun looking back on it. But even even his accounts, he seemed to really enjoy and pay attention to every little moment he was in, almost in the sense where, I don't know, he, he in reading about the way he would enjoy some of these hunts that were brutal i mean uh that first hunt there's one aspect where they just talk about how they had to forage rivers through the badlands and you know on horseback not knowing what you're doing in his spectacles crossing a river 14 separate times i mean it sounds miserable and awful and then to cap that a night off like that where you have to sleep outside on the saddle of your horse and then have that pillow ripped away because your horses are spooked by wolves it, it, it it's it's an amazing experience that um while you're in it, it's probably terrifying for most folks um then you can look back on it with joy when it's over but he there's accounts in the moment where he goes man that this is fun <laughs> you know what i mean and uh i think it speaks to all of us to to maybe just get outside and get some adventuring in whether it's taking like yesterday we took our kids up to uh, lake 22 it's I told the kids uh, it was their it was their biggest jaunt so far. You know, the, the nine, seven, and five year old. We go uh, we go um, seven miles up. You know, up you know fifteen hundred feet or so. Not really high climb, but it was fun for them to go off roading and and get some adventuring in. And and I wonder if that's not an aspect too that um, you know don't always take the safe course and just take the walk around the block. Every now and then you gotta you gotta pick a hike that's a bit of a challenge or maybe get a little bit outside your means. Yeah. Well, even later in life, like he almost died in the, the Amazon rainforest, you know, which um, Candice Millard, who was kind enough to write a book on my uh, my book on Harry Truman, Whistle, Whistle Stop, she wrote a book called The River of Doubt. And it's where he and one of his sons and um, 
some of his buddies went down and it goes back to his childhood where he was collecting bugs and frogs and snakes and like you you alluded to where he was he was torn between whether to start a zoo or a museum or both as a kid you yeah know, that's that right kind of and so he you know goes down there with the support of all these societies you know that are um encouraging him yeah can you look for this species of snake and like is there is there still this tree going growing down there and he was recording everything in his diary and um it almost killed him, you know, because the, obviously the. I'm not sure I would ever want to go to a rainforest. Frankly, everything there is trying to kill you, um, and it almost did kill him, you know. So you've got thing malaria, and you've got, you know, tropical other tropical diseases, and it's this really arduous um, expedition. But yeah, Candice Millard is a is a historian who does these amazing slices of life, these microcosm history. So, um, the River of Doubt is a, is an excellent book so it's like read 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 uh, morris's trilogy on roosevelt um read the bully pulpit by doris Kearns goodwin read um mornings on horseback david mccullough but then also yeah the river of doubt is definitely by candace millard is in that kind of pantheon of teddy books well, for me it's super interesting to me that you got this guy who's an asthmatic child overcomes it by doing pretty much push-ups and, and rowing boats, right? Mm -hmm. and, and getting mm -hmm. outdoors. Yeah. And then even later... Which in ties in with your boys in the boat, <laughs> right, yeah. right now. Yeah. Even, then even later in life, he, despite still doctors saying your heart and lungs are still bad, he goes down into the Amazon, overcomes malaria. And to, to parallel that with what we're going today, where, you know, we have we have this strange virus. We don't quite know a lot about it, but stay indoors, freak out. You know what I mean? There's there's a weird hysteria, right? But I just wonder if, you know, live your life hard, live it clean, and get after it. You know, that's – it's a romantic way to look at it, but it's also might be the real way you have to get through this, even this current situation. Like, rather than focus – rather than wait for a vaccine to develop for some ailment you don't know about or even in this current place, one that we are all worried about – Maybe the best antidote is just to, to get after it. Yeah. And I think ultimately as fathers, like we're, you know, if mothers are listening to like this, this is a difficult time for all of us. Like I wrote back and forth with a journalist friend whose, whose name I won't mention, but um, where he said like, you know, we're now hearing that the schools may not open up in September and that's all I was hanging on to because his, his wife got a promotion at work. And so he's been kind of, upping his dad duty should we say recently but also still writing for some of the most prestigious publications in the world and you know he's one of the best writers i know and a great guy but um yeah we're you know what this is doing to our kids and not being able to be around their friends and all this different stuff but it's like well if your kids ask you to go shoot some hoops or whatever it is we're going to come to a, again a, a crossroads where you can either choose to be in front of a screen or you can choose to be doing that with your kids and you can't ultimately do both at a certain point so choose the strenuous life like yeah did, really. <laughs> that's it's right a, and sure we all have days where you look at your significant other and you're like well we really messed that up yeah <laughs> you know you give, it, give yourself or, or collectively you give yourself an f minus but um you know it, it part of it is just showing up and trying every day and and so yeah i think obviously you know my wife haven't had this bloody thing like it's a legitimate thing but yet there are particularly in nature right now there are such big open spaces i mean even if we look at the ones that teddy did right so 
after becoming president, um, he established 150 national forests, mm. 51 federal bird reserves, four na- national game preserves, five national parks, and 18 national monuments. And it was a total of 230 million acres of public lands. And those are only the ones that he established. So even sure. if you take 230 million, okay, well, I know there's quite a few people in the U.S., but I'm sure now there's more than one acre per person. Yeah, we can all get out to national <laughs> land. You can go socially distance in your own acre. You know, yeah. I mean, seriously. Let alone the ocean. That probably doesn't even cover oceans and waterways and lakes. So, you know, grab your paddleboard, whatever. Go buy a hundred dollar kayak at Walmart, whatever it is, and just you know, go do something. The kiddos, um, because again, they're gonna their behavior is going to be modeling a lot of it comes back to modeling what they see demonstrated right sure and so you can't be perfect and there are days where you really balls it up for whatever reason but yeah i think it is important you know like do just simple like do something creative every day do something active every day sure and and i would even go back to that you know do something and you can you can you can um interpret this as you want i would say do something is vi- I don't know violence the right word, but something hard, something aggressive. Aggressive is a better word. I mean, whether you're picking up a medicine ball and throwing it down, uh, whether you're sprinting up ahead of steps, um, whether you're doing a box jump. I think some of that that twitchy stuff is super important with that too. And and he was doing that. I mean, he wasn't. I don't know if he was smart enough to to do plyometrics and whatnot. And he wasn't doing that. But I mean, he was boxing. He was fighting. And he seemed to he seemed to he seemed to relish that rough and tumble experience as much as he liked to enjoy the finer things in life as well and i think that's another aspect of this too like he was a chameleon in that sense where you know you can even see it in his writing where there's i guess there's um there's some accounts of him having negotiations to buy or to buy into his first beef business which is kind of straightforward conversation but then you dive into his diaries and you see these 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 long um educated descriptions of of particular animals and and going into his books but he had that kind of cool chameleon sense where where he was living in many different worlds but he found a way to bring all that together well even from an athletic standpoint so there was, I think it was in 1875, where him and his brothers and cousins competed in 15 different activities, you know, That's and, right. and then total at the points, right? It was like a mini Olympics that they did. And it, like yeah. you said, it's like boxing, wrestling, horse riding, vaulting, all this different stuff. So I think today we get too caught up in, and originally I interviewed Dave Epstein for, for Train Heroic when we did this part on youth sports. And then I interviewed Chris Bell, who did the documentary um, Bigger, Stronger, Faster, which you probably know, but also did yep. the Trophy Kids show on HBO, like these horrible sports parents. Mm. It doesn't always have to be formalized. Like your kids can learn as much playing one-on-one in the backyard. Like Michael Jordan didn't learn anything from his high school coach compared to what he learned from his brother Larry beating up on him. In yeah, an older fella, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, or yesterday, you know, my oldest son did his five sets of five deadlifts. Um, we sold our squat rack during the move, partly because it was a pain to move and partly because it was me and my buddy doing it and partly because it was never tall enough. So I know from Kelly and others, like that hollow position that you, you don't want to be hitching your legs up right underneath you. It's the mm. classic pull-up mistake, so I'm going to buy a buy a taller one from my boys here at rep fitness here in denver but my 10 year old is a freaking beast on the pull-up bar like he can nice. beat most, seriously like beat most adults the number of pull-ups this kid can do but we don't have a bar right now but 
even if you go out to the playground and find something that will approximate a pull-up bar, you know, just go and have them do that. Because, I mean, organized sports is all well and good, and you can't put a price on good coaching. But to be physically competent, watch any kid on a playground, particularly if it has different slides and monkey bars and swings, and they're going to be in a squat, a lunge, a hinge, a pull, a press, you know, all the different movement archetypes many times over in rapid succession and do it as you to your point violently um and aggressively until they just tire out and can't go anymore that unsuper have to be formalized like this arms race of oh so what sports are your kids in oh so they are are they on the traveling team for that or like chris bell said if you have like an eight-year-old and they're traveling from colorado to california to play competitive games (laughs) you might want to rethink your priorities a little bit yeah and just saying if you have a lebron james prodigy or a you you know mini usain bolt okay well fine do whatever you want but i think that there's too much emphasis on you have to have your sport, your kids in X number of sports and you have to just be a glorified taxi driver um, and then complain about it to all your friends all the time. And how many parents do we know that do it? And the motivation is correct and is good. Like get your kids active and get them some good instruction from someone who probably knows more than you. Okay, well, that's a good motivation. But when it goes to the point that your entire world as a family involves revolves around this kid and this activity or three or seven or ten, it's setting up some major ego problems, man. And then you layer on social media, the narcissism of that. We're churning out a generation of narcissists who, unlike Teddy, where learning from his father was, yeah, he had a heck of an ego on him. Let's be honest, he really did. But ultimately, he saw from his father that when you have privilege, the go- the role and the goal of that should be to serve your community to serve others it shouldn't be just to gratify yourself or your ego well no and it, he seemed it seemed like he was to, to your last point it seemed like he was aware of that right and he mm-hmm. and it's and, and again i don't know if this is this i'm trying to read i'm trying to read you know when i read this book and i'm trying to make a parallel between you know what we're seeing in you know the 1880s and early 1900s to what we're seeing now in the early to mid 2000s and the political climate back then seemed to be as hard nosed as ever. I mean, they didn't oh, like it. So. Yeah, they didn't yeah, like I mean, each other. If you look at Abraham Lincoln, like some of the cartoons where they would draw him as like a chimpanzee. I remember seeing in one. It was maybe the book Rise to, to Greatness by David Dreely. I think that was in, and they would just make up stuff about politicians' private lives. It was almost like the tabloid press, yeah. you know, and it wasn't on Twitter. <laughs> it wasn't the vitriol on there, but it was brutal. And like I said, the the debates that they would have in the state legislature could often turn violent, like as not maybe not like the Roman Senate where people were being stabbed on the steps sometimes, which we know some historical examples there or parallels. But these were the politics then was like in the campaign trail. You know, you could be out canvassing and oh, here comes here comes the rival candidate and all his boys. And it almost becomes a street brawl. So, yeah, like we think it was we look back on it as like, oh, this civilized victorian society and it's like no it wasn't <laughs> but but as as brutal as it was they they there seemed to it seemed to me and and maybe it's the the author maybe it's the way they've decided to depict it in this book or it seems even with that kind of we're not we're we're against each other politics they still seem to come together a little bit more to get things done and and one thing even 
even in his early political career where I guess he was up for, he assumed he would be the Speaker of the House in Washington, excuse me, in New York. Um, and then he didn't get the job through some kind of political dealings behind his back, but he was still gracious enough to walk across there and congratulate the fellow who, who had won it and still get back into work. And I just wonder, is that, you know, the difference there, am I wrong in seeing just people are able to put their differences aside a little bit more versus today where some of these differences um, seem to not allow any work to take place at all? Is, is social media the difference there? I mean, what do you think? Well, I think, I think with him it was partly that he saw different slices of life. Um, so he saw like in the Dakotas, like the, the, the kind of rough and ready ranch hands, you know, I guess we would say working class, but he was from the upper class. And yet his dad, with his philanthropy, would serve the, the true poor of New York. And then, you know, in, in the pol- in the political sphere, it was probably mainly the middle to upper class. And so he would he would not just see from afar, but would be deeply embedded. And then even in the military with the Rough Riders, you know, like they were rough old guys. So hmm. he got to see and sit down and break bread with people from all walks of life. So I think that... Um, you know, my, my friend Mark Carter, who's a professional snowboarder, he's from Ten Sleep, Wyoming, this tiny little town in Wyoming. He told me one time, he was like, man, if people would just be willing to sit down and have face-to-face conversations like this more often with people who come from different backgrounds, mm. have different political beliefs, different values, we wouldn't have half the troubles that we have in this world right now, which I think, um, and we see even with the, like the Black Lives Matter um, movement, I don't want to get into it too much, but it's kind of the fear of the other, you know, 100%. If you haven't walked a mile in someone else's shoes or you haven't even um, made any effort to get outside of, or even it's a biblical thing. Like it's Jesus even says something like, you know, even sinners can be nice to people who are like them essentially. And I'm paraphrasing. It's like, what about your enemies? Can you love them too? Can you love the people who, who aren't like you? Like, and the story of the good Samaritan, it was, you know, these, two basically ethnic groups that hated each other, right? And it's like, well, you know, the Samaritan, and then it's like, or even Jesus with the woman at the well. Like, and I don't, you know, not an interest really, if anyone is a Christian, isn't, is Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, there are stories in those traditions too, no doubt, but just in not fearing the other and being willing to entertain the idea of sitting down and getting to know someone who doesn't look like you think like you talk like you and i I saw a headline the other day and i haven't dived into it i think it was in wired magazine where it said something like how facebook groups are killing america and i think really the thought was that it's creating these echo chambers you know and you hear of people who defriend anyone who dares to have a political opinion that doesn't align with theirs so it does and that's almost become a cliche but i think that that we, you know, we take these partisan news reports, we riff about them in our little safe group with a bunch of people who are like us, and it just reinforces stereotypes and partisanship and divisions. Um, so if you look at someone like Teddy, who is willing to have dinner with, with a ranch hand, with you know his rough old boys in the Rough Riders as soldiers, with his father's aristocratic friends and his kind of circle and just saw people as people and just wanted to get to know them and would actually embed in their way of life for a while and find out how they lived and then live it out himself. Like that, that to me is a pretty good takeaway, pretty good model of how we could all do better. Well, yeah, it's a, it's just engaged 
in your direct community, right? And 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 even you know to to piggyback more on that point that you're making, it's like early in his political career, and you know he had high moral character, right? And then all of a sudden now he's got to go into these backdoor politics and surly places to work with these folks, and and maybe that was the first taste of him experiencing okay i can work with these folks who are different than me for a common a common goal to get legislator passed through or then i can go out to the dakotas with these rough and tumble fellows and work this out or you know even early on in his life he's he's going into the adirondack woods with folks who are different than him after his i, f- I forget the name of that early mentor after his father had passed we, you know mm-hmm. he's obviously searching for one but he's just stomping around in the woods with this fella and and i wonder if the takeaway there isn't that through Facebook groups and social media, we're looking to find the perfect community to engage with, but we're missing the fact that what we probably need to engage with is all the folks in our direct community and just find Mm -hmm. the differences there. And and where I can find this in my own personal life is even where I work with teaching, right? There's a really interesting draw with teachers where when you hear certain teachers talk about kids like they're other folks, like they're not your kids in your classroom. And then you could take that one step further and say, maybe the issue for policing folks isn't that there's bad cops or good cops as much as folks lose sight of, I'm actually interacting with other humans who, you know, I'm, I'm interacting with other people, not those people. And I think that that that's a big difference. And, 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 he seemed to actively do that. Like all people were folks and no matter what their background was, he was, he was going to engage with them and learn about them. And he also developed a skill set where he could have those conversations with multiple sets of folks. I mean, he wasn't, and I think having open hours, you know, you alluded to this where he would set aside an hour or two every day where anyone could just come in and talk to him off the street. And sure. Some of them were just trying to petition for jobs. Um, the same with Abraham Lincoln, you know, even more so. He hit, he he had even wider hours for that kind of thing, and a lot of it was, oh, well, remember when I did you this favor back in the day? You know, basically just wanting a job in the administration, but a lot of it wasn't too, and it was just you know, bankers and farmers and everything in between coming to him and just wanting to complain about this local issue or that, and then he would have to prioritize which he wanted to take action on, which he could take action on. Maybe there were some crackpots in there, some crazy ideas that he just thought, well, I'll ignore them. But he was always taking notes in those conversations and trying to be trying to be open and listen. And so I think, you know, I mean, the guy did have some flaws. He was um, he was a glutton. You know, that that led to the demise of his health, where his activity level declined in later life. But he was still eating like a horse and mm. probably killed him off 10, 20 years before it should have. Um, he was very egotistical. He was. So, driven by status and um, material success in some way. So definitely wasn't, like Churchill, wasn't a saint. But I think both of those leaders at the end of the day had common common goals in mind and also shepherded their nation through very turbulent periods in history. And so, yeah, I mean, just in terms of robustness and a willingness to um, to listen to and, and try to understand different people and then really to try to give back to the land what it had given to him in terms of strength when he was a kid that needed to be built up and solace when he, he had this double family tragedy on one day mm. that would have laid most of us low. Um, I mean, we wouldn't be having a conversation about that act that you, you mentioned earlier had it not been for um, what he did for conservation in this country. Yeah, and it's amazing where 
you know, you have this, again, to go back to this double tragedy he experienced, you know, there's accounts of him just kind of like that day, this um, mindlessly pacing. But in his own accounts, that was him sorting his mind out to figure out what to do next. And I also wonder, too, like, don't you feel like when he, he had that misery, right, he confronts it and moves forward with it. He doesn't try to mask it with um, or mask the or band-aid it with some strange was, you know, put it in their terms, snake oil, right? He, he, he conquered it head on, um, which I think is, is pretty cool. I'd, I'd like to ask you a question. And, and, you know, as, as I, I told you before the podcast, I didn't get as far along in the book as I'd like, because I got harpooned by this unbelievable story of these boys in the boats, local story here. Check so that good. Check out that book too. But, um, talk to me. I had somebody made a comment about the formation of the Rough Riders group and, and, and what he wanted to do. Can you speak on where that came about? I mean, just um, the, the specifics of it, because where I am in, in his journey is he's just going back out west after after his wife and mother had passed through. And then how how long after that did this formation? Because that was, again, another yeah, rough and tumble group. Peri- it's not the period I know most about, to be honest with you. But I do know that when he spoke about it in later years, it wasn't. I mean, he did kind of lionize what they did as a group. But in that day, it was almost like the Marines in Iwo Jima raising the flag, you know. Um, It it was like this nationally known thing of their role in that conflict. And, okay, he would tell stories and put himself front and center in the action. But if you actually read what um, the guys would say about him, they were like, no, he wasn't exaggerating. Like, he was leading the charge. But he would always talk about it as as us and we and you know this kind of group so again the ego is there but he suppressed it in the sense that it wasn't like yes and then i got on my horse Mm. and no one followed me and i led them this charge up this hill and but it was he was really proud of the camaraderie and the you know that so and so is better at this so we let him do that and then so and so is good at this and i wasn't and and he was pretty even-handed in terms of um wanting to be like a good athlete talking about the team almost like i'm reading the book by um straight eight by kieran reed the outgoing new zealand all blacks captain okay because i think it was like the third most capped all black in test history and there was one game where he won basically won the game against their hated rivals the australians right the wallabies and he just wrote something like and yeah and then i crashed over for a late try to give us a one-point lead whereas the rest of that series against Australia, he devotes several pages to the other members of the team who scored this try and that try and how the, the coaches really motivated them after they had lost to the Aussies last time and this whole lengthy explanation, like kind of framing the scene. And then it was like this, almost this afterthought of like, oh yeah, and then the deciding game, I scored the game winning try. And, it, and Roosevelt, you know, um, in terms of formation, I, I can't recall that much about it because this little binge that you're on this binge reading um, sure. for me, it was like four or five years ago, but I do know that later it was the mystique of the group as the rough riders. It wasn't like Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, and there were a few other guys with me. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's cool. And, and I, and I'm on this little binge part of this book because, you know, what I hear through, conservation efforts through Teddy Roosevelt in the grand sense of what he created for us to enjoy and, and to go harvest, hike, hunt, fish, enjoy, camp, kayak, however you want to use these public lands. They're there through his effort, you know, and then a lot of that was through, you know, political will. I mean, it wasn't easy to do and he had to be pretty savvy about doing it. But 
Um, I don't think any of that would have been possible had he not dedicated himself early on to developing physical prowess, like to, to get after it. And, and um, I think it's something that we could all take away. And, you know, as I kind of think about it, it's like um, you gotta, you gotta, I think his dad was right at that early conversation. You have the mind, but you have to make your body. Right. And I think that that. Yeah. And even what he wrote then to to confirm that in that letter that you wrote, right. Yeah. Cousin, whatever. Like I, so basically, like the takeaway line was, and therefore I have resolved to build my body. So yeah. <laughs> it was, um, and yeah, he did it. Pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. So you know, we've been chatting for about Teddy for an hour and back and forth on this. Is there, you know, you alluded to there's a there's aspects of his life that maybe you're more you're more focused on or or have some takeaways from that are important. Is there something about Teddy that? Um, folks need to know right now that, that they could also take away that we maybe have glanced over or haven't spent enough time with. Yeah. Well, I think, um, part of it just goes back to fathers and sons, you know, with having two sons. Um, and like I said, yesterday, fathers, they didn't probably go as well as any of us would have hoped in some ways, but we did get to play some basketball for a while. And then they kicked the ball around until they retired out. So, um, his father said, this is a great quote from Theodore senior. He said, you have the mind, but you have not the body. Yeah. And without the help of the body, the mind cannot go as far as it should. You must make your body. And that was kind of the exhortation mm. at the beginning. And so we, as fathers, it's up to us as parents in general, you know, moms as well, to, to set the example. Um, and I recently read a great quote, and I, it's a bad anecdote because I forget the name of the guy, but he was writing for Strong First. And he wrote um, something like, I can't... I, I can't conjure a situation in my life in which not being strong enough has helped me yeah but i can think of plenty where being stronger yeah. or stronger than i needed to be has helped me you know that kind of idea so i think that just um you know just developing the mind like um my, my colleague and co-author jim afromo says that um kind of do five minutes of mental skills training every day whether that's visualization goal setting working on self-talk because we know that the most um, powerful words we're ever, we'll ever hear are the ones we say to ourselves in our mm. heads, right? So even if you just started with self-talk. So I think that's true. Um, Kelly Starrett says do 10 minutes of mobility a day every day. Maybe do five minutes of breath work every day and do something active for half an hour, whether that's going for a walk, swinging a kettlebell, whatever. So I think that if you start to bring together these, these disciplines of body of mind, um, and then if you have a faith, hopefully doing better than i do with the spiritual disciplines i mean because i can say it but do i do it probably not enough um well plus it's hard to watch church on the internet you know i don't know what's things in colorado but it's a little different experience going in there and watching father paul give a sermon than it is trying to load up the computer you would love him um (laughs) you know he's a hunter he's into outdoorsy things jim bergen at flat irons here and, and he's great and gave a great message yesterday but i prefer the focused experience yeah. being in the room and i'm not doing it if i have to wear a mask so they yeah i haven't opened back up but hopefully soon but yeah i think um so going back to to teddy like we it, it starts with us leading our kids and yeah. to do that to lead others you have to be able to lead yourself so just having the self-discipline to to not abdicate, um, to not sit on the couch and watch six hours of football at the weekend, even though occasionally, you know, the NBA starts up, I'll be watching a bit of that. <laughs> I um, hear you. When eventually the rugby test start up, I'll be watching a bit of that too. But um, 
So that's fine. And that's something you could do as a family too. But I think just being active with your kids um, and we see what, you know, Teddy senior, where he says you must make the body. Well, he was pretty serious about this and had it not been for his guidance, it's arguable that his son would have still been, you know, it would have been a sickly adult much as he was a sickly child. So to me, it comes back down to that link of father and son. And then just going back to that quote I read earlier, like, for us, it is the life of action, of strenuous performance of duty. Let us live in the harness, striving mightily. Let us rather run the risk of wearing out than of rusting out. Love it. Yeah, go, go out and do things. What's it? They think, I don't know if it's Top Gun, but I'd go out in a blaze of glory, right? I mean, that's, mm. what, we, that's what we all want to do. But uh, and to, yeah. the, the other thing is, um, I love that idea that we have to lead our kids from the front and show them these things. It's not enough just to talk about them, right? And uh, it makes me think about... I think I was talking with Ben Greenfield on a podcast and he brought up research and I wish I could quote the exact article, but the sense was that there's, there's proof that when you're fit or even that you're working to be fit in front of your kids, the the real win is there is they perceive their own fitness to be higher when they see you working for mm-hmm. yours or if they perceive you to be fit. You know, and I think that's cool. You know, my kids over this damn COVID situation, I've, they've all got pull-ups now, you know, and they weren't yeah. doing it in their PE class at school, right? Oh, well, they can't. There's <laughs> so, a lot of bad instruction out there. Like, yeah. they're trying to teach our kids to do push-outs with their elbows out still. Uh, and when they me. argue about it, and, and mine are doing them like Kelly Storrett showed me, Yeah. the comeback is, well, how many Olympic athletes have you trained? Sure. I mean, basically, right? Yep. But, um, but yeah, it is. I mean, I think Ben, I, I've never met him, but he, mm-hmm. he was kind enough to write a review of my book, The 17-Hour Fast. But I know that he, from his, his posts and his um, podcast, that he is living a wild life with those kids. Like, they're shooting, oh, yeah. you know, they got bows, they're shooting at targets. They're they got to forage their own veggies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're, he's, he actually... He lives it, right? Yeah. He's living it with those kids. And Kelly, the same with his kids. And I'm sure once Andy's kids get a bit bigger. And, you know, all the people that I work with are, are practicing what they preach in terms of their family. And sure, we can all do a better job of that. But I think it's ultimately, that's the key. It's not just what what do you do, but how does what do you do pass along the, the things you're trying to pass along? Like, we need to, and even just being creative. Like, I think... Um, may not feel like it all the time but hopefully i'm showing like you don't have to work in an office like find something that you're passionate about and go do it um sure and be my kids are more creative you know we have a lego master builder we have a film director in the house and that's as or more important as anything they could do in the sporting realm um so you know go create every day be active every day and um yeah as uh as T- Teddy says, live the life of action, right? The I love strenuous it. life. Yeah. And I think um, the blog, the art of, slash podcast, The Art of Manliness, has a lot of useful Teddy resources. Like some of the prep that I did for today's call came from directly Very from cool. what Brett and his team over at Art of Manliness do. And um, they even have a program called The Strenuous Life, I think, as well. So they do a lot of good. Brett McKay does a lot of good work, has a lot of, he's had a lot of authors on probably some of who we, we mentioned that have written about Ro- teddy roosevelt and others and yeah they're just doing a doing a good job of kind of pushing the strenuous life well i think that's a good thing to push i mean because if it's strenuous you know i guess in that same way you, you brought up that idea that you know too much strength 
hasn't been a problem for me as much as not enough strength for that one gentleman. But it's the same thing with 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 strain, right? I mean, how many times do you look back on a strenuous effort, even in failure, whether it's I can sit here and tell you right now, even that little kid book I put together, it wasn't easy to do, but it was effort worth doing. And and what makes it worthwhile is even my little girl picking it up and going, hey, daddy, here's my book you made for me. You know, like, that's enough. That's super cool. And every now and then, so, so get after it, you know, and I think we've, we've looked at some ideas that you can do to be strenuous and maybe just sum it up. It's um, in terms of your personal interactions with folks, you know, make the strenuous effort to maybe get to know somebody different. Um, in terms of just aerobic capacities, man, you got to niche out a part in the day to maybe go long and slow, right? And, and strenuous effort in terms of, you know, resistance training, maybe you got to find a pl- way to just push things hard a little bit. I mean, and I think if you can kind of get after that, I think there's some great lessons. And um, yeah, I, I, l- looking at some of these figures in their own personal lives is, is pretty amazing to me. And I think it's fitting right now as um, we kind of move forward in modern days with some really interesting problems. I think you can see that these problems always existed to some degree. And the way to get through them is personal effort and and live in this strenuous life i think it's really cool and i, I appreciate you popping on phil to uh to do this again um i'll give you the final word here you're always talking about co-authoring and and doing stuff and and reading books and researching that and being involved with this blog um uh, current projects that you're working on that we can look forward to in in the horizon where we might be able to uh check out phil white books and and and, and your next adventure yeah, so I'm working on a, a project kind of on performance psychology with Jim Aframo. As I mentioned, he wrote, of course, The Champion's Mind and The Champion's Comeback. Um, and even for kids, you know, a great kids sports psychology book, or really the only good one is is his book, The Young Champion's Mind, Cool, which is really good. Um, so, yeah, blessed to be working on that with Jim. And then we're also... Um, him and a fellow by the name of Dave Kearney, who's an Irish rugby player, um, came together to kind of create an app version of the champion's mind. So mm. yeah, if, you, if I'm not too much into the tech, as you know, so there's some irony here, but really just a resource that allows you to do that five minutes a day of mental skills training is just the champion's mind app in both the, uh, the Google play store and, uh, the Apple store. So that's been a, a fun project to work on. Horrifyingly, any coaches out there that buy a team license will have to endure me doing like a little intro <laughs> video for this okay. 12 module course we're doing. So yeah, that's kind of fun. And then Kelly Starrett and I are working on our, on our next book. Um, and I can't really give away too much about those projects until they're signed and sealed, but you and I can go over more details later. And um, yeah, right. so really just love to have a conversation with anyone at, at Phil White Books. There's a contact form on there taking it easy on the social still right now for various reasons but um yeah just fill whitebooks.com fill it a form have a conversation be well, fun yeah maybe you can have a podcast with phil like i did uh we work oh, careful we're, now yeah <laughs> we're, we're working all that out but no it's interesting and i'll let you know that um uh the gentleman who lent me uh the rise of uh theodore roosevelt I had purchased uh, a copy of your book about Churchill. So as a gift for letting, oh, for, for, uh, as a gift, you know, cause he's a Churchill fan too. So I'm going to pass that along. And, um, when I get that review, um, in fact, when he gives it to me, I'll tell him to go to the Amazon and write a review for you. How about that? So we can get it some. Wouldn't mo- <laughs> it wouldn't. <laughs> Maybe he'll be the one that read it, you know? Yeah, that's right. One. <laughs> well, well, you know, you'll have two. It'll be me and him. We'll at least check that out. But um, no, I, I, cool. I just think it's cool. And I told you this before the podcast started. I think you're just an interesting position because 
you know, you've obviously spent time to dive into some of these historical figures, uh, deep dives. And then also now as your current practice in writing, you're, you're interacting with a lot of these modern day coaches. And uh, I guess the final question on that regard is, is anything really new in fitness? I mean, honestly, we started this conversation with Teddy's home gym, right? And it was full of yeah. gymnastics equipment. And he's, right. as a coach right now, I'm recommending, hey, get a pull-up bar. Mm-hmm. You need a kettlebell and a jump rope. If you have that, yeah. And maybe yeah, it- <laughs> I mean, I, I would say like a, a kettlebell and a, and a rowing machine. Yeah. Like I just bought, he's actually an Australian, but he's a, a, close to your neck of the woods now because his wife's American, this guy, Matt. Um, it, the company is called Ortec. Okay. And it's a dynamic rowing machine. So it's a bit easier. It mimics on the water rowing better, which you, I could guide you down this path pretty easy because okay. obviously you're, you're into the boys in the boat right now. But there isn't that horrible thing that you get on the Concept 2 where it kind of slams your QL you know okay. your lower back at the end and there isn't as much rib tightness and that kind of thing it just mm. feels smoother like on the water so yeah this company Ortec, that's kind of cool so got one of those when i sold some equipment to make some budget room and some literal room in our new house but yeah if you have a row machine the kettlebell and you can and a basketball or hiking shoes or something that you can do outdoors then i think you're pretty much covered um and it really comes down to like i i kind of like pavel's essentialism when it comes to well he does essentialism with everything like the rule in his house is if you buy something something else has to go out which is kind of cool and Mm. admirable but like the kettlebell my buddy ollie quinn who's a coach down in texas an irish transplant a former um british army soldier really neat guy strong as heck but he he posted a picture recently where it was like the kettlebell in the middle and it was like strength endurance mobility like all the physical qualities and you can pretty much and it, like Brett Jones, the performance director at Strong First says, like, you can do the same thing every day. Just don't do the same thing every day. So sure. even if you just did, you know, like to a dad, I have friends that um, I used to live with that will get back in contact and be like, man, you know, the third kid, I just don't know what to do. You know, now we, we're not, you know, physically together to work out anymore. And we don't have like two hours a day like we used to. What do I do? And I'm like, man. Buy a copy of Pavel's book, Simple and Sinister. It's a great book. Second edition slash revised edition. Buy the weight of kettlebell that Pavel recommends. And as you move up, buy a heavier one. Or Iron Master has a pretty good adjustable one. And if you just did swings and get-ups three days a week and the rest of the time you just did something active with your family... You'd be all right. You got 99% of what you need. And it's so hard to convince folks of that sometimes. It's just like, hey, set it and forget it. Um just trust me it'll work out right so um well cool phil it's uh great maybe what we'll do uh we'll have to try to get you on again and talk about boys in the boat it's a book that i'm super intrigued mm-hmm. with pocock's that the shells are right up the road it kind of oh. it was such a good book it it, it veered me off of this course because i again it's just to look back at what we're currently going through and to parallel that with what people were going through in the thirties and forties. It's just, I mean, you're talking (laughs) like 40 something percent unemployment amazing tent cities and stuff. Yeah. That book is one of my favorite books and it, it makes me want to, you know, we ever write a mega mega bestseller then maybe i'll buy a pocock wooden road because those there's a community online actually there's a pretty strong forum going around this and Mm. people you know selling these so yeah i can't justify whatever it would be but they are um they're amazing machines and again just looking at craftsmanship like this guy pocock that made these boats just that's his highest ambition was to craft the sleekest lightest best looking boat in the water and I had a pleasure for for my book Waterman 2.0 with Kelly. We interviewed um, 
Jim Terrell, who's the founder of Quick Blade Paddles, which are the best stand-up paddles paddles out there. And then um, also Joe Bark, um, whose company is Bark Paddle Boards, and he was a firefighter as a profession, but just started shaping boards in his off time, and they would do like the Catalina race, the prone paddleboard race. Okay. And then when stand-up came around, managed to pivot and retired from the fire service. But he talks about he'll still have nights where he'll wake up at 2 in the morning with an idea of, oh, maybe I could do this, you know, the hull shape a bit different, or I could reduce the drag. And he's perfected the art of sneaking out of the house without waking his wife up. Nice. You know, the guy's in his late 50s, early 60s now, but he still, he'll go down and work all the next day and all the next day. And then his son, Jack, is a professional waterman, but he'll have him come out in the water and Joe will be behind him in the boat, like watching the glide and how it leans when it encounters waves and just, yeah, so Jim Terrell at Quickblade and Joe Bark at um, Bark Paddleboards, just craftsmen like Pocock. So, yeah, we, we could geek out about that for sure. Well, there it is, folks. So how about we'll give everyone some homework. Uh, Phil, my homework is as soon as we get off the, the horn here, I'll email you again and set that up. Uh, if I hear yes, I'm going to, you know, I, I stick oh, yeah, with course. it and confirm it. I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. I got you on the yep. hook. You know, you set yep. the hook. But then, folks, listen, and I would really get on that book. I mean, right now we all have time. Um, get some perspective and get a great book. And maybe you want to catch up on this conversation and check out some great reading about um, Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, you mentioned, Phil, um, uh, Morning Rides or Morning Glory. What, what? Mornings on Horseback. Mornings on Horseback. By David McCullough, yeah. And then, or, uh, uh, or this one, which is uh, The Bully Pulpit. Bully Pulpit. Dor- yeah. Cool. And then, Guns Given. And then the third one was um, The River of Doubt by Candice Millard. I love it. That's a great title. Uh, but, uh, and then um but then too if you want to be on point with our next conversation i think i'd love to have you on phil again to talk about boys in the boat um it's a it took it's, it's, it's it, over here somewhere brother it's um the heck is it it's on the uh i have like a where i reorganize my bookshelves um i've got like my pantheon shelf you know it's like the, the best of the best in different genres so it's over here somewhere in hardback yeah. but and I went so far as to buy two copies. I have the Young Readers Edition, which I'm trying to adapt to my health classes. Oh, yeah, classes. that's a great little hardback for the kids, yeah. So, uh, well, cool. We'll have to get on it. So, folks, if you want to get on it, um, check out Phil's stuff, uh, philwhitebooks.com. Uh, check out our website, Backcountry and Barbells. You guys can keep up with some of these conversations. It would be cool to have you. If you have questions about Boys in the Boat, maybe um, maybe we can toss them your way, Phil. Phil, this is super you excellent. Get, you should get Daniel James Brown on, the author. I'll, I should do that. I wonder, what do you think, he, do you know him? Would he be receptive? I, I don't know him, but I know that <laughs> the way he built up Buzz for that book was not doing like national TV. He wasn't on like Good Morning America. He he just did like every little rowing club all over your part of the world. Oh, super cool. And so if he's going to go to a rowing club with 12 members, I'm going to guess he would be receptive. So come on, Daniel, let's call him out. Let's yeah. This thing. I wonder if he'd be fired up for a, you know, some some South Philly bloke who's out here in love with the Pacific Northwest trying to change his, the culture in his health classroom. Right. I wonder, and using his book to do that. that, I think that he, sounds he, like a good he story. Seems like he's pretty old school. <laughs> um, so just hit him up through his website. I bet, I bet he'd be up for it. All right. Well, there it is. And now you've given me something, Phil. I appreciate that brother. Uh, it was a great, great chat, man. And um, I'm looking forward to the next one. I appreciate you, pal. All right. I appreciate you, brother. Thanks for your time. Sweet deal.